Women's Fight Back, issue 26, pages 3 to 8. Page 3. An Introduction to Socialist Feminism by Kelly Rogers. Workers' liberty believes that the liberation of women can only happen with the emancipation of humanity as a whole through the socialist transformation of society. That transformation can only happen through working-class struggle with women playing a full and equal role. The working class is a vast majority of people, immensely diverse, but united by a dependency on wage labour to survive. Men and women both depend on wage labour, but it is mainly women who have a burden of both wage labour and unpaid domestic labour. Class societies have used women's historic and current role in childbearing to maintain a gendered division of labour that influences the availability, price and type of wage labour men and women do. Misogyny, sexism, racism, xenophobia, homophobia and other divisions suit the interests of capital because they provide the basis for extreme exploitation of minority groups, for example the driving down of wages and conditions for women workers, migrant workers and so on. They undermine working class solidarity and resistance. If you are busy hating your neighbour, you forget how much you ought to hate your boss. Women's oppression also provides the grist for some aspects of homophobia and transphobia. These have other roots as well, but a thread that runs through is an ideology around gender conformity, rigid ideas about gender presentation, what it means to be a real woman or man, and strict gender roles in the nuclear family. The family is a central focus for us. It is currently and, his, and has historically been a keen instrument for capitalist accumulation, helping to depress wages and ensure the reproduction of workers' labour power both day to day and generation to generation. The things we do to keep our families and communities going are mostly done for free or by very low-waged workers like nannies and cleaners. The family has also been the site of gendered oppression and immiseration. The gendered division of labour, bullying and domestic violence, isolation and loneliness. But the family, despite its many flaws, remains a means by which working class people cannot just survive but find degrees of real fulfilment and pleasure in our daily lives. So as socialist feminists, we want to expand the fulfilling and pleasurable aspects of familial relationships, giving people opportunities to nurture the relationships that are important to them and eradicating unhealthy power dynamics between partners, between parents and children, etc. By overthrowing class society and cutting the roots of oppression, we can create the conditions for the liberation of all of humanity. In a society based on democracy and solidarity, it will be possible to work to end all forms of oppression and exploitation. Likewise, building a common socialist project that is feminist will create an organised working class that is fighting fit, empowered and working in common cause. In other words, without the abolition of class exploitation, there can be no end to women's oppression. But without a mass movement of organised, mobilised women fighting for liberation, there can be no socialist revolution. We fight for taxation of the rich, expropriation, expropriate the banks, 
increase public funds to provide adequate publicly provided support for all women, including trans women, a living wage for all workers, decent affordable housing and a comprehensive benefits and welfare system. Solidarity across borders, free movement worldwide and full citizenship rights for migrants. The decriminalisation of sex work and workers' rights for all, including a comprehensive right to strike, freely and without limitation, for strong, democratic, militant, feminist trade unions. Sexual freedom and liberation for lesbian, gay, bisexual and trans people for comprehensive sex and relationship education and healthy, positive attitudes towards sex. Safe, legal and free contraception and abortion on demand and an end to the social pressures and stigmatization around women's reproductive choices. A secular society in which religion does not dictate women's roles, clothing or any other aspect of our lives. A complete breakdown of the public-private divide and reorganisation of the domestic sphere, free, flexible, universal childcare, expanded parental rights at home, a shorter working week. Pages 4 to 6 If not more police and stiffer sentence, what will tackle violence against women? By Kelly Rogers In March this year, the news broke that Sarah Everard had been snatched when walking home in South London and murdered by a serving police officer. People came together, in person and online, to mourn her death and to share their own stories of fear and, and of anger, of harassment and abuse. At Clapham Common, her local park, thousands gathered for a vigil and protest that was violently broken up by the police. The history of how gendered violence has been treated in law tells us a lot about how sexist our society is. In 1857, a, a man was able to beat his wife so, so long as the implement he used to do it was no thicker than his thumb. In 1895, a City of London bylaw criminalised wife-beating between the hours of 10pm and 7am because the noise was keeping people awake. In 1956, rape was legally defined for the first time. In the 1970s, in the context of a flourishing women's movement, significant steps forward were made. The first Select Committee on Violence Against Women was held in 1975. The first legislation to combat domestic violence was introduced in 1976, quickly followed by legislation facilitating women to get housing if they are leaving an abusive partner. And the first domestic violence refuge in the world opened in London in 1979. It wasn't until 1991 that rape within marriage was criminalised. Feminist political norms around violence against women manifested in calls for more police and stiffer sentences reflect decades of having to fight to have sexual and domestic violence recognised as crimes, victims as victims, and perpetrators as perpetrators. The battles won by the feminist movement in the 1970s and since have gone a long way to improve the lot of victims of gendered violence in Britain, as well as changing social attitudes more broadly. 
Recent victories over upskirting made a crime in 2019 and revenge porn in 2015 show that there are still victories to be made on this front. But there is a difference between acknowledging that progress has been made in terms of the law on the one hand and simply trusting the state and the police on the other. When the police attacked the Sarah Everard vigil in Clapham Common earlier this year, Keir Starmer described it as deeply disturbing and made a series of public statements calling for action to end violence against women. But among the sensible, if rather vague, Labour responses was something quite different, a call for more police on the beat. Are the police a solution? Seeing a heavier police presence as a solution to gendered violence relies on a world's view that sees the police as a neutral body working in the interests of the public and not as a partially armed and dangerous force working in the service of the state. We see this latter role constantly in the violent repression of protest or when police break up strikes. An FOI request made earlier this year revealed that between 2012 and 2018 there were 594 complaints of sexual misconduct made against Met's employees, 119 of which were upheld. Not only are the police bad at dealing with abuse, they are often a source of abuse and harassment themselves. Then there is the role that they play in terrorising migrants and ethnic minority communities. The fact that police forces across the Western world are rife with racism is not a coincidence or simply a passive reflection of racism in society. The primary role of the police is to protect private property, patrol borders and wage campaigns on behalf of the state from the war on drugs to crack down on antisocial behaviour, which are proxies for a policy of racial and social exclusion and depression. The basic thing that police are permitted to do is to use violence, whereas ordinary citizens are not. And the crucial question for feminists therefore has to be, is police violence and the punitive criminal justice system that runs alongside it the solution? The answer we must give to this is no. Of course, we do often rely on the police if we are in danger and, again, of course, we rightly celebrate when men like Harvey Weinstein are finally called to account and their victims vindicated. But police can only be seen as a sticking plaster, a minimal source of protection in the absence of bigger, better solutions to deep-rooted social issues. And when victims of social, sexual and domestic violence turn to the police, the system systematically fails them, and not only in terms of the tiny number of rape or domestic violence cases that reach courts. In the un unlikely event that a perpetrator is successfully convicted, the evidence shows that prison doesn't work, at least not on any reasonable metrics. It doesn't stop people committing crimes. 47% of prisoners re-offend within one year of release, all the while churning people through a system that is itself incredibly inhumane and violent. Rather than seeking to make perpetrators better people, to come to terms with what they've done and nurture empathy with a victim, prison works on the basis of serving time. 
between 4 and 5% of the global prison population are sexually assaulted every year and 1% are raped, all part of a cycle of violence and dehumanization which makes us less, not more, safe. The system is also remarkably blind to the needs of victims of violence who are regularly criminalized themselves. A 2017 report by the Prison Reform Trust found that 57% of women in prison have been victims of domestic violence and that 53% have experienced emotional, physical or sexual abuse as a child compared to 27% of men. The report also found that women often commit criminal offences in the context of coercive relationships and that when they turn to the police for help, they are met with disbelief and hostility. Reverse cuts support victims. The problem we have then is that, by and large, the police don't keep us safe and prisons don't work, so what will? The simplest place to start is with demands that will allow women to leave abusive relationships and violent situations. Cuts to services have made it immeasurably harder for people to leave dangerous situations, live in safety and without f- live in safety and without fear, and move on. Cuts over the past decade have seen refugees being shut down, a crisis in social housing provision, and devastating cuts to legal aid. Specialist domestic violence services are being outsourced and hollowed out. We need long-term funding for sexual abuse and domestic violence services to meet the needs of all victims, including specialist services for BAME and LGBTIQ people, and the provision of flexible mental health support and counselling for victims through long-term recovery. Services must be under public control and run for the benefit of victims, not for profit. We also know that those most likely to be trapped in violent situations are those on the margins of society. Undocumented migrants and asylum seekers, sex workers, workers on poverty wages struggling to feed themselves and their children, these are the people who are most at risk and are being systematically let down. We need access to safe and secure housing for all, which means rents, controls and building more social housing. We need a proper living wage and decent conditions at work, the right to organise and a generous benefit system that treats everyone with respect. We need an end to the hostile environment and no recourse to public funds, policies for migrants and the closing down of all detention centres. Within the criminal justice system, we must demand a system that works for survivors, one which does not ignore, neglect and re-traumatise. That means ensuring that survivors are not criminalised and investigators as guilty parties by the police. Legal aid will will need to be provided universally, and the family court system will need complete reform. The police, too, need a complete overhaul. For the time being... We do rely on the police for minimal protection, but it needs to be made fit for purpose and purged of its worst elements. Some proposals for police reform have been published below. Going further, but if we are going to work towards ending gendered violence, treating the causes and not just the symptoms, that will mean getting to the root of society's greatest dysfunctions. The commonly held belief 
when it comes to the police and the prison system is that we are, by our nature, self-interested and we need the state to impose order by violent means if necessary. But what if that isn't true? It is true that police exhibit behaviours which are brutal and cruel. But what if these behaviours aren't anything to do with human nature, but a reflection of a system which constantly brutalises us? In her recent social history of rape, Mitu Sanyal recalls that, quotes, sexual violence as the triumph of man's power over women is a trope in rape narratives. However, Hannah Arendt argued that violence signifies neither triumph nor power, but powerlessness. Because power needs consensus, even the most despotic system can only continue in the long run if enough, if enough people benefit from it. Violence arises out of the cracks of power. End quotes. Sexual violence is part of a system of wider gen- gendered oppression in which men are empowered at women's expense. But on the same level, it is also the product of a much wider sense of powerlessness and humiliation. Sexual violence is most prevalent in societies and institutions that are most unequal, the most hierarchical in the military, in private schools and in prisons. Quotes, The basic rule of thumbs, argues Sale, is... If an institution or a community is hierarchical and favours rigid gender roles, its members are more at risk of sexual violence than members of a society that is more equal in relation to, but by no means restricted to, gender. A kind of dehumanisation is central to the way that our society functions. Prisons and the military function by robbing people of empathy but they are only an extreme example of a much wider exploitation and alienation, one which is overseen by different kinds of hierarchies. Traditional conceptions of masculinity, at least in the West, are built on something similar. Men are taught to distance themselves emotionally from themselves and those around them. The result of those of these processes is that we have created a society in which violence is normalised, and in which a large number of people lack common decency and regard empathy as a weakness. This is not to say that perpetrators of violence and abuse are somehow guiltless, that society made them that way. It's not that simple. We must work towards a system of genuine restorative justice, which holds perpetrators to account for their actions, and best enables victims to move on with their lives but that work will be best done when we have rejected calls for more police on the beat or for harsher prison sentences and are fighting in earnest for a social order built on equality, mutual respect and solidarity. Cur police powers In the wake of the global wave of Black Lives Matter protests following George Floyd's murder last year, Workers' Liberty printed the following objectives for the movement to organise around for reforming the police. 1. The right of oppressed people and the labour movement to self-defence against police violence. 2. Curb police powers, including sharply restricting the use of force, aggressive prosecution of police who kill and violate human rights, abolition of stop-and-search, Ending undercover infiltration of social movements, disarming and demilitarization, 
replace the independent office for police conduct with a strong elected body, restore and expand legal aid. 3. Accountability, including subordinating forces to elected local representatives with real control over budgets and operational policy. 4. Reforms to reduce the police's role in society and stop criminalising swathes of working class people, including dramatically reducing the prison population, an end to police dealing with mental health emergencies, an end to persecuting youth under the banner of combating gay gangs, an end to persecuting homeless people, legalisation of drugs, decriminalisation of sex work, an end to persecuting gypsy, roma and traveller communities. 5. Dismantle the anti-immigration apparatus. Abolish the immigration police. Halt the Tories' rush to a hard Brexit. 6. Instead of more police, emergency funding to block a new wave of cuts to services. Reversal of all cuts since 2010. Then major increases in public spending taking collective democratic control of wealth to ward off a social disaster and begin to meet working-class needs for decent jobs, homes, benefits and services, including youth services, refugees, mental health services, drug rehab, abolition of anti-migrant restrictions such as NRPF and the NHS surcharge. Page 7 and 8. Sex-positive feminism isn't just about sex, it's about power, by Elizabeth Butterworth. Recently I've been reflecting on sex-positive feminism and whether it needs a revival. The term may not be immediately clear if you aren't first on second and third wave feminism in the West, so it's important to point out that it came about as a rejection of some radical feminist ideas. Radical lesbian feminist thinkers like Jill Johnston, Sidney Abbott and Barbary Love posited that heterosexuality itself upheld patriarchy through the personal domination of women by men. In order to be truly free from men and the influence of patriarchy, you must be a dyke. The ideas of some radical feminists when it comes to pornography and sex work were persuasive to thousands of feminists and still are today. Writers like Catherine McKinnon and Andrea Dworkin argued that selling sex takes away consent. Money invalidates anyone's ability to freely consent. Dworkin wrote, quote, prostitution in and of itself is an abuse of a woman's body, end quotes. Catherine McKinnon wrote, quotes, if prostitution is not a free choice, why are the women with the fewest choices the ones most often found doing it? End quotes. The latter is a fair question. As a socialist feminist, I wouldn't dis- dispute that work or earning money is a necessity to survive in a capitalist society. Of course, economic factors, including class, must drive large parts of sex work. But does this negate women's agency entirely or make us unable to consent? Possibly not. McKinnon, Dworkin, Dines and others would argue that pornography is like prostitution, an act of male violence where women are subsumed and commodified and used as receptacles. Robin Morgan wrote, quotes, Pornography is the theory 
rape is the practice, end quotes. I don't doubt that there is tons of violent porn and that porn actors' workers are more often than not treated poorly. The difficulty I have with the ideas like this, though, is that whatever our experiences or reasoning, if we disagree with them, we are simply duped by the patriarchy. There's absolutely no room for questioning these all-consuming assumptions or with coming up with ways we could empower porn sex workers, such as union organising or campaigning for better rights. Doing so, despite the tangible effects it could have on many people's lives, makes socialists and feminists into rape enablers and handmaidens of the patriarchy. In asserting this, radical feminism actually subsumes women's voices, unless they agree with them, and acts as a kind of bossy big sister feminism where the subtext is I know best and do what I say, replacing critical thinking and women's agency. For reasons I would struggle to explain, especially as someone born in the 1980s, I've recently found myself consuming feminist contents on the social media app TikTok, where typically users are much younger than those on Facebook. Everyone's gran is on Facebook these days or even on Instagram, which is much loved by millennials. There's actually a lot of good feminist stuff on there. That's why I've stayed, I guess, including brief, punchy explainers on things like the male gaze, hilarious responses to misogynist dating coaches, and critiques of art and culture like a recent trend of Written by Man, showing the absurd sexualization of women in some media, also very witty. It's about time that we brought back the debates we have we were having 30 plus years ago. Not because younger feminists need to be patronised or put right, but because if you believe in your ideas, you should persuade others of them. I found it instructive 10 years ago to read and understand these debates and to also see with my own eyes the massive shift that occurred, partly due to our activists, in attitudes to sex work. It needs to be explained to as many people as possible that sex-positive feminism isn't about thinking sex is great or empowering in some way. A lot of sex would appear to be just quite boring from what I read, which is uh, the reason why we need better sex education. Sex-positive feminism is about believing women when they tell us that their relationship with a man is not coercive or inherently poisonous. It's about believing women who say they'd rather sell nudes than work a minimum wage job. It's about believing women who say their homemade porn isn't hurting anyone. But more importantly, it's about finding solutions that actually make sense. If women, as McKinnon asserts, have little choice, shouldn't we campaign for them to have choice rather than removing sex work as an option? Shouldn't we instead instead be campaigning for much better safety nets for the unemployed, for massive pay rises for millions of people, for immigration amnesties and decriminalisation of migration? That's not to say that we shouldn't prosecute human traffickers or sexually exploitative pimps, but we should make it easier for people to work safely and less likely that they turn to them in desperation for exploiters' safety or protection they need. At the moment, our sex work laws are just as likely to target two women working in the same residence for their own safety. Quotes, women 
who don't have choices, end quotes, is surely code for women without immigration papers, women on poverty wages or no wages, women doing unpaid reproductive labor to support dependents and the like. Capitalist economics and ideology are hugely important and will often use the remaining forces of patriarchy to continue to exploit us. Socialist feminism has the most satisfactory answers to working class women's lives and always has. Child Maintenance Service, Money Before Women's Safety by Janine Booth In May 2017, Emma Day was stabbed to death by her ex-partner Mark Morris, father of one of the two kids she had dropped off at school. Morris had repeatedly threatened to kill Emma, warning her not to try to make him pay child support. Emma told the Child Maintenance Service, CMS, this several times, but still they pursued Morris for money. He murdered her a few days after the CMS reinstated its claim for money from him. Two years on, a domestic homicide review into Emma's death recommended urgent reform of the CMS. Two years after that, the coroner's report into a killing has revealed that the reform has not happened. Women and children are still at risk. The report now sits on government desks, but women and children need action now, not the review promised by the DWP in due course. Thirty years ago, I and others were campaigning against the Child Support Act, knowing that it would put women and children at risk. Half of women claiming child support have experienced domestic violence. The Act and government policy ever since is soaked in the gender stereotypes of mother as carer, father as breadwinner. Although it applies equally to men and women, regardless of which parents no no longer live with the kids, the law refers to the absent parents as he, declaring his responsibilities to the child met so long as he pays money. (laughs) 